Hey folks, I'm Nick D'Alessandro and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. Today is July 25th, 2022. In two days, it will be the four-year anniversary of this show's existence. The very first episode was released on July 27th, 2018. And man, oh man, how many things have changed in the last four years since that first episode came out. When I put out that first episode, I was fresh out of college. I had graduated just over two months earlier. When I wrote the first episode, I didn't have a job. I was sitting in my room every single day, figuring out the right thing to do with my time, applying to jobs and wondering where I was headed. When the idea for the show came to me, it wasn't what it is now. For those of you who haven't listened to the early episodes, and I highly recommend that you do not, they were very much shows of the moment. Shows that reflected the Florida that we were living in in 2018. The first few episodes of this show were about politics, my very best attempt at covering the current events in Florida. I mean, the first episode of the show was about the Brightline trains. I did an interview on a terrible microphone, and it's about 10 minutes long, the whole episode. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a fascinating artifact all these years later. I'd go on to write about sanctuary cities, education funding, and the algae bloom, which we are still dealing with in our state, as I tried to figure out what this thing was. When the first episode of the show came out, there was a different governor, a different president, and about a billion other impossible things that were so different compared to the world we're living in today, for better or for worse. Politics have just become more divisive and complicated and stressful and exhausting since this show turned away from being a political show. But it's 2022 now, and another election for governor looms on the horizon. I expect to be talking about that a lot more as the weeks go by. It is the same situation that we were in when this show was created in 2018. It is the summer before an election. Unlike last time, our governor is seeking re-election. Last time, we were going to get a new governor no matter what. This election is sure to be a highly watched election around the country. People are very curious about Florida nowadays, and Ron DeSantis has certainly created a character for himself in the national conversation. I thought today that for the anniversary, the four-year anniversary, we could talk a little bit about the state of Florida, in particularly referenced one specific thing that's going on, and of course, tie it into our history. That was the original idea four years ago. My friend Bailey, who you've heard on the show a few times, I talked to her about what this show should be, and she was the one who said, have you considered making a political show that also has a lot of history in it? And well, four years later, look what it became. So today, we're going to be talking about people. Floridians, but mostly people who aren't Floridians, and the massive migration of non-Floridians that are coming into our state every day, right now. And why? I've heard this a lot from longtime Floridians. It's, I've, I've genuinely seen people mentioning it in conversation all over the state. Folks from all over have been saying the same thing to me. Doesn't it seem like there's a lot more people especially on the highways, when you're driving in Orlando or Tampa or Miami, it just feels like there's a lot more people. It very well may feel that way because it is. You're not imagining things. More and more people are coming to Florida, just as they did 200 years ago. But we'll go back there in a moment. 
According to the website Florida Realtors, a few things are an indicator of the changing quality of Florida's population. Quote, in 2020, 167 people moved into Florida for every 100 who left. In 2021, that number surged to 210 inbound residents for every 100 who left, meaning more than twice as many people moved into the state than left it. End quote. They're coming from all over the country, but mostly, it seems, California and New York. There's no clear piece of information to point as to why. An obvious one is that Florida has no state income tax, but the pandemic and other economic influences seem to be driving the changes. Governor DeSantis's opposition to more rigorous COVID restrictions has drawn the attention of those who agree with that policy. Even though Florida's positive cases and deaths related to COVID were among the highest in the nation, quote, over 74,000 individuals have died from COVID-19 in Florida, end quote. Despite this, the pandemic attracted people to Florida because of DeSantis's policies. And now in this new version of our state, things are changing. Rent, for one thing, is significantly higher across the state. We likely won't know the final impact of this migration until years from now, when we can look back once those numbers have leveled out. For now, just as so many Americans have over the last 200 years, they've pulled up their stakes and moved to the Sunshine State. Maybe it's the weather, maybe it's everything else. People always say people actually born in Florida are rare, and this permanent trend is one reason as to why. Me, a Florida-born Floridian, I'm an anomaly. Everybody always is like, nobody's from Florida. And I'm always like, well, I am. Everybody else is from somewhere else. And, and that's nothing new compared especially to the 1800s. Obviously, this world with new economic stresses and a volatile climate emergency, that's different. The way that new people impact our state, it's different than it was in the 19th century. But the similarities in why people come are fascinating in ways I never thought possible. So to see where that story begins, we're going to need to actually leave Florida and travel a couple hundred miles north. This, my friends, you're about to hear the first audio recorded of my voice for this show that was in fact recorded in a state other than Florida. So I'm going to throw to my in the field reporter, one Nick D'Alessandro, a few months ago in Boston, Massachusetts. So I am downtown. The area where I came out from the MBTA was literally right on the Freedom Trail. I had a, I popped into the Faneuil Hall, one of the first, uh, an old meeting house here in Boston, almost said Florida, here in Boston, to go to the bathroom, pretty normal. But uh, I'm walking down state so I can get over to Devonshire Street, which is a street where there was a building, 82 Devonshire Street, which was a building that had a land company inside of it that formed the uh, town in Florida, Orange Park, Florida, just outside of Jacksonville. But turning right here underneath this scaffolding is 82 Devonshire. It's a concrete building. I can't tell what the construction is because it's above me. But there is a gated, there is a gilded doorway into 82 Devonshire. Seems like it's an apartment building, but 140 years ago, it was a land company for a company that was trying to develop cities and, and homes in Florida. 
Now, I tell you this because it's an amazing piece of history, but also because I'm, I'm walking in the direction of and will shortly be at the site of the Boston Massacre, which is kind of the incident that, that began the American Revolutionary War. That's where we are. Right here, I am at the site of the Boston Massacre, March 5, 1770. Now, we are actually further away from the land company that formed a city in Florida in time than that land company was from the Boston Massacre. That was only 110 years after the Boston Massacre. It's been 140 years since this land company charted land in Florida. That, that, that is astounding to understand. Like That passage of time from the beginning of the revolution to the creation of that town in Florida compared to the creation of that town in Florida to right now, the gap is amazing. If you had told me three years ago that I'd absolutely be loving the city of Boston, I think you were nuts. My family are all Northerners, Pennsylvania and New York, so Boston was enemy territory. The land of Patriots and Red Sox was not a city that my Yankee family wanted to be in. When my girlfriend Robin started living there to attend graduate school, however, I soon started falling in love with this old city, with its food and neighborhoods and eccentricities. I've enjoyed some strange sights in my miles of walking around the city of Boston and eaten plenty of Italian and Thai food in my several visits. I've seen it in its blazing summer months, and I've seen it as snow poured from the misty gray sky. When I visited in February of this year, it was so cold that despite my several layers of warm clothing, I was literally bouncing around as we waited for a bus in an attempt to generate warmth in my body to no success. Boston in February, let me tell you, is just the polar opposite of Florida. But in my most recent trip, summer was just beginning in Boston. Heat was picking up slowly, but a cold wind was whipping across the city, and I literally had to wear a jacket and a beanie. But that's the conditions as I come to you now from Boston, Massachusetts. I had a few hours to kill before the Airbnb was available, so I went downtown in search of a little piece of history, as you heard me mention. There's an area of Boston that is so densely packed with history in just a few blocks for one, there is the site of the Boston Massacre. In 1770, as tensions were rising in Boston between the residents and the British Army, a riot broke out here in the city, outside of a building that is now a train station. Five of the protesters were killed by the British soldiers, an act of injustice that fueled the likes of Samuel Adams to sow the seeds of rebellion. The Boston Massacre is one of the defining moments of the revolution, and today, it is marked with a circle of bricks. Every time I pass it, despite the roaring city around me, the buses rumbling above and the tea rumbling below, I feel a sense of unease. So much started at this little brick circle that the everyday citizens of Boston pass by without a second glance. Just a few steps away is Faneuil Hall. Throughout Boston's history, it was a marketplace and a meeting house all its own that some very important Boston figures have passed through. I also think of Faneuil Hall as one of the locations of a replica of the pub Cheers, based on one of my favorite sitcoms, Cheers? Don't get me started. Anyway, a quietly important building is just a few steps away from Faneuil Hall and the Boston Massacre. It is the original location of the aptly named Florida Winter Home and Improvement Company. On a document kept by the town of Orange Park, Florida, the address of the improvement company is listed, 82 Devonshire Street, Boston. And that is where I am. Just within these walls, a whole city hundreds of miles away was conceived of. 
The day I'm recording, I had just taken a three-hour plane ride from Orlando to Boston. I sat in a chair in the sky and watched a bad movie, and it took me no effort to get from Florida to Boston. But 200 years ago, the improvement company inside this building, the people who signed off on creating a town in Florida, they may never have even been to Florida. But on April 1st, 1884, apparently the date that the map that I'm looking at was made, Orange Park was growing, just one of many cities that boomed in Florida in the 1800s. But they only could boom because there were people there to build for. Northerners, people from all over who were coming to Florida. That is because in the 1800s, especially after the Civil War, there were plenty of opportunities for people to come to our state. But before the Civil War, even before the state became a state, people started coming to Florida in a huge migration. That period saw such exponential growth that you would not believe. In the early 1800s, the population of Florida was a few thousand. By 1900, the census says that the population of Florida was about 528,000. That is a huge boom. Now, the 20th century would bring in a couple million more people, an even greater boom, but there were few cities in Florida when all these people were coming in. They were building the cities that then people flooded to after the turn of the century. Things were on the precipice of growing in 1800. Cities that would blossom, communities that would grow, all of that was just on the precipice of exploding into life. And the city of Orange Park, the one founded in the unassuming building in Boston, is actually a great lens with which to view that transitional period in the state of Florida. So for that, we have to go back to the second Spanish period after the American Revolution and the years leading up to a not often discussed chapter in Florida's history, the Florida Patriots War. We've talked about this a few times on the show, most notably in the first episode of 2021, all about how Florida was invited to join the American Revolution. We could have been the 14th and 15th colonies. But with the siege of Pensacola and their defeat in the American Revolution, the British lost control of the two colonies of East and West Florida. What was once Spanish became British and was now Spanish again, albeit only for a few years. But in the early years of the 1800s, Florida was Spanish land yet again. But their days were numbered. If they were going to maintain their control of Florida, they were going to need an asset that was difficult to acquire. They needed people, and a lot of them. Enter Governor Vicente Manuel de Cispedes. Governor Cispedes was a Spanish-born member of the Spanish Royal Army, who was the governor of East Florida when it went back to Spain. In 1784, the new governor took over the title from the British. Apparently, the ceremony was literally at Castillo de San Marcos in St. Augustine, probably for dramatic effect. But Cispedes had an edict from the Spanish rulers. East Florida needed to be a legitimate colony now. So while he was sorting out who owned St. Augustine and what parts of it, he sent out an invitation. Quote, he offered large land grants, a 10-year tax-free occupancy, and a cash bonus to any family who would come to start a farm. He even offered to pay each pioneer one and a half cents a day for feed supplies. End quote. There was a catch, of course. You had to be Catholic. Spain was, of course, a massive Catholic empire. They had gotten themselves in a couple wars because of that, but they held true to their values. 
Some folks, including people who had been enslaved while the British ruled Florida, just said that they were Catholic so that they could remain in the state. The Spanish knew that some people were just saying it. They didn't mean it. They just said it so they could stay, but it seems that they didn't care enough. They needed people, and people came. But not everyone who came into Spanish Florida during this period had Spain's development in mind. Some people were interested in quite the opposite, and they had the burgeoning American government backing them up. They called themselves patriots, a word that has become more and more loaded over the last several years. Back in the early 1800s, it was a word used by the American soldiers during the revolution, and it was still attributed to anyone who apparently defied British rule. Clearly, this extended to defying Spanish colonies as well, and as more folks moved to the Sunshine States, a few of them were Americans, patriots who wanted Florida to join these new United States. According to the Jacksonville Historical Society, anywhere in Florida where the Spanish weren't explicitly ruling the land, things were, quote-unquote, anarchy. Or at least that's what the federal government said. The American government was acting under the assumption that the Spanish simply weren't ruling Florida the way that they should, that the colony was out of control, too many people, not enough leadership, and the Americans believed that they could do it better, naturally. They were also in land fights over the Louisiana Purchase and several other lands out west, so America was hoping to, famously, expand. So the President of the United States decided to put Florida on his agenda. His name was James Madison. Born in Virginia, member of the Continental Congress, co-writer of the Federalist Papers, and the eventual writer of the Bill of Rights, James Madison was the fourth President of the United States. Madison took office in 1809 and soon found himself facing trouble. The British and French were raising hell in the waters around the United States, making trade extremely difficult. What we now call the War of 1812 would soon follow, but another war would break out in 1812, dubbed by author James Cusick as the Other War of 1812. That is the Patriots' War. Madison wanted Florida in the American fold, so on January 15, 1811, quote, Congress passed a secret act for acquisition of the area, end quote. The words Congress and secret acts rarely go well together. Quote, Madison appointed former Governor General George Matthews to lead a contingent into Florida with justification that U.S. forces must support local revolts against Spanish oppression, end quote. The revolts that were mentioned in that quote weren't really a thing. The Americans clearly did not like Spanish rule, but James Madison just needed an excuse. So he claimed that chaos needed to be tamped down and the Spanish were not the people to do it. They needed America. So the Americans needed those patriots to step up. Quote, by March 1812, the Patriots, aided by the U.S. Navy and with leadership from John McIntosh, took possession of Fernandina and Amelia Island. End quote. All the way up in the northeastern corner of Florida, north of Jacksonville, that is where they went. The Patriots took the northeast corner of Florida, and they had plans to make their way to St. Augustine. All other cities in their path would likely fall to the Patriots as well. Which brings us back to Orange Park, back before the Florida Winter Home and Improvement Company came to town. Back then, Orange Park was actually called Laurel Grove, and it was the home of a man named Zephaniah Kingsley. We've talked about the Kingsley family before because there is a very interesting ghost story connected to his old plantation. Zephaniah was a very interesting character, someone we'll have to spend a whole episode or two discussing because his story is broad and connects many different parts of our state. Zephaniah was a white British man. His wife, Anna, was an African-born woman who was taken as a slave. 
She was in Havana being sold at the same time as Zephaniah Kingsley was in Cuba, and he purchased her. She would go on to be his wife. Like I said, it's a very complicated story. Zephaniah was a slave owner, but his policies with the enslaved people were unusual for the time. According to a historian interviewed by the Florida Times Union named Joel McEachin, Zephaniah let the enslaved persons have free time and free hours, and he allowed them to work on their own farms. Quote, his idea was that if he treated his slaves better, it would prevent the chance of a rebellion and make them better laborers. End quote. Some folks apparently want to give Zephaniah some pats on the back. You won't hear that sentiment here. Either way, the American policy for slavery was different than the policies for slavery under Spanish rule. Zephaniah wanted to keep his plantation working the way that it already was, so when the Patriots' War was picking up and America was on the way, Laurel Grove saw that their way of life was being threatened. During the Patriots' War, the Laurel Grove plantation was seized, and when all was said and done, quote, under the auspices of the United States, a new American system of slavery was put in place that was tougher and more restrictive than the previous Spanish one, end quote. The Kingsleys lost that land and moved to another, where they established a new Kingsley plantation, which today is not far from the original Fort Caroline location, which we talked about earlier this year. You can go visit it. I've heard it's a fascinating place. That original land that they fled, Laurel Grove, because of the Patriots, would become Orange Park, thanks to the Florida Winter Home and Improvement Company in Boston, Massachusetts. The Patriots were sweeping into Northeast Florida and they had help. There wasn't even a massive force that surged into North Florida. It was a little over a hundred men, folks from Georgia and Tennessee, folks who were once loyal to the Spanish who abandoned that cause and joined up with the Patriots, and of course, the US Navy. With the gunboats by sea and soldiers on foot, they pointed their guns at the island and claimed it. They removed the Spanish flag and put up their own Patriots flag, which I'll post on the social media. It's pretty simple. A white field with a blue soldier kind of at an angle like he's walking and a Latin phrase on the bottom. The phrase on the bottom reads, Salus Populi Lex Suprema, which means the safety of the people, the supreme law. This land now was claimed for the Patriots. And as I mentioned, they had a new goal after they took the islands, St. Augustine. They had a new goal in mind to expand this new Republic of East Florida. They were going to St. Augustine, the Spanish capital. Over the following weeks in the spring of 1812, the Patriots would blaze a trail from Fernandina towards St. Augustine, telling each town they passed who they were, that they were claiming this land for America, and moving on. They even wrote up a small government, a provisional government with a constitution and everything. They called themselves the Republic of East Florida, and for just around two years, this little rebellion of Americans held their own in the Spanish colony of Florida. But they had become spread out. By the time they reached St. Augustine, which they did not take, they were all along the St. John's and St. Mary's rivers, and they even tried to create a fort near Gainesville. That ended in bloodshed. But there was no stable foot for the Patriots to stand on. This land still belonged to the Spanish, and they were just guys with a flag. By 1816, the Spanish government was ready to absorb the Patriot-claimed lands back into the fold, back into their colony, so they sent a few leaders, including Zephaniah Kingsley, to sort out a treaty. They met with the quote-unquote malcontents and arranged a full ending to the conflict. The Patriots' war essentially ended with the same whisper with which it began. The American people, the American government, had other things on their mind, and the Patriot War was looking more and more like, hmm, maybe a waste of everybody's time. 
and it turned into more of a hassle as Florida neared becoming an American colony. According to Finding Florida by T.D. Allman, a book that inspired the creation of this show, the U.S. essentially paid off the remaining patriots so they'd stop suggesting that their failure was because of Spanish harassment. America and Spain signed a treaty, and Allman says, quote, Had the treaty not declared these claims, quote-unquote, entirely cancelled, various former marauders might have gone on pestering Spain in U.S. courts for decades to come. Spain, in turn, would have had grounds for delaying Florida's transfer to the United States. End quote. That would not be permitted. That deal with those pesky patriots allowed Florida to become an American territory and eventually a state. The Spanish attempt to grow Florida had failed. Almond says, quote, After all these centuries, the total quote unquote Spanish population of Florida was only about 3,000. End quote. By the time Florida became a state in 1845, it had been 24 years since the Spanish had given up the territory to Florida. In the 30-something years of the Second Spanish Period before that, the population of Spanish residents just didn't blossom in Florida. But in the 24 years once Florida became an American territory, the population of Florida boomed to 66,000 residents. That is crazy. Which, I think, just goes to show you one thing, really. Americans have always and will always make their way to Florida. This massive migration that we're seeing right now is nothing new. They've been doing it for 200 years. And that is precisely why I love this show. Precisely why it has inspired me so much for the last four years. Because the things that are happening now are reflections or shades or variations of the same things that Floridians of the past have been dealing with. And look, we're here. We made it. We survived the hard things, the scary things, the impossibly difficult, can't see the end of things. We made it to the other side. So even if we're talking about something as small as population growth or something as massive as a complete cultural shift, we have survived it. Florida survives. And that's why this show helps me sleep at night, honestly. Because sometimes it is scary out there. But I trust us to find our way out. We've done it before. I don't see any reason why we can't do it again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I am so glad that you are here. It seriously means the world to me that I've been making this show for four years. And as the listenership has steadily grown, I have gained so many friends, so many consistent listeners, and it just truly has changed my life. I wake up every day grateful that I get to make a show about my state that I love so much much. I get to tell her stories. I get to talk about you all. I get to talk about our environment. I, I get to do what I truly love. And that means a lot to me. This show is very, 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 very important to me. And I'm so grateful that I get to make it. So here's to another four years when we get to talk about another gubernatorial election, because that is what you're going to hear a lot about from me in the next couple of weeks. 
Obviously, this season is going to end soon, but I'm still going to be making episodes during that period, shorter episodes, preparing you for the upcoming election, preparing you for the upcoming primary. So that is the thing I want to talk about right now really quickly. The Florida primary is Tuesday, August 23rd, 2022. That is just about a month away from now. Florida is a closed primary state. That is very important for you to know. This is from the Florida Department of State. This is a quote about the closed primary elections. Quote, only voters who are registered members of political parties may vote for respective party candidates or nominees for an office in a primary election, including a presidential preference primary election. End quote. So that does not mean that if you are a non-registered party voter, you cannot vote in the primary because there are non-partisan elections still in the primary. Go to the Florida Division of Elections, go to vote.org and learn more about what is going on in the state of Florida with the election that is coming up. They are very, very important. We have big things coming up. Congress people, people in the state legislature, and obviously we have a gubernatorial election. There may be a new governor by the end of this year. There are a lot of things in motion right now in Florida politics. You'll be hearing me talk about it a lot more, especially after the primaries as we get closer to the election itself. So please... Go to the links in the episode description. There will be connections to get you more information on ballots and voting and all of that because it's an important election this year. Well, it's always an important election, especially here in Florida. So do your research. I'll be talking to you more about it, especially about the amendments, because that is one of the most fascinating and important parts of our electoral system. Anyway, the primary, August 23rd. See if you've got your plans ready to go. I know I've got my plans ready. I am looking forward to it. I hope you are, too. So, it's been four years. This show has still got some politics in its blood. <laughs> it fully did not leave the DNA of this show. It's, it's very much still a part of it. So, thank you for that. If you enjoy this show, if you enjoyed this show at any point in the last four years... I would really appreciate it if you left a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really means a lot to me, and it helps the show grow. You can also reach out to me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod, and you can reach me by email at WFMPod at gmail.com. I want to say my Gmail again, WFMPod, gmail.com. I am hoping that I can do an episode, possibly this season or in between seasons, that is just small stories from listener suggestions. So if you have something you want to hear me explore or visit or or talk about on the show or give my opinion on, <laughs> if that's something you're interested in, just let me know. Send me an email. Truly, I would love to hear from you. All the music used in this episode was originally composed. All right, folks, that is it for this anniversary episode. Thank you for listening today and any day for the last four years. Thank you for listening, truly. All right, I will be back next week. It will be August. There are some very exciting stories coming in August, stories I've been working on for a long time. And one of those stories is next Monday. You're going to hear about one of the most interesting little creatures in all of Florida, our coral I met some people who are working very hard every day to protect our coral, and man, that was one of the best days this summer. I cannot wait for you to hear it. I will see you next Monday when we talk about our coral. Until then, be good to yourself, be good to others, and as always, drink more water. Have a good week. See you next Monday. <laughs>